Welcome to citiesabc.com series of interviews and profiling, profiling with leading global leaders, thought leaders, experts and people shaping the world and creating new narratives and the projects for our world, our people and our industry. Citiesabc.com is a new uh, wiki digital platform for cities, citizens that intends to reinvent and unite cities citizens, universities, leaders, entrepreneurs, and people that are creating empowering guidance and new solutions for the world we're facing and the world with a lot of challenges. Today, we have with us an amazing person that I deeply respect for all the things he's been achieving, but as well for his persistence and as well dynamics and creativity. Mamadou Toure that is the founder of Africa 2.0, but as well involved in a lot of different things uh, from the Ubuntu group and a lot of different other projects in terms of gathering a community of young leaders from Africa and the diaspora and pioneering a designing and proactive influencer network to drive a vision for Africa through the advocacy and create scalable impact initiatives. Mamadou, it's a pleasure to have you here. Same here. It's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, congratulations for the great work you guys are doing. No, no, I have to start with you. It's really amazing what you've been doing in the last years. And as well, um, the impact. I have a big passion for Africa, but I know that is not easy. And as well, it's the fast-growing continent in the world. It's the youngest population as well. So it's the future of mankind. So it's the past and the future. So um, It's the past and the future. You know, everything has a cycle. Exactly. The beginnings. <laughs> so I would like to start by, so someone like you doesn't come by accident. So I would love to, I think especially one of the things I like always to hear in, in leaders and, and the entrepreneurs like you is your background. Because if I'm a child uh, in a village in Africa or in a village in Asia or whatever, or in Latin America, I like to know how Mamadou became Mamadou. And I think that story is very important <laughs> in, as inspiration but as well as, as uh, the devil's on details in the sense of explaining and motivating people. No, thank you. Uh, look, I, sometimes I wonder myself how Mamadou became Mamadou. I think the, the, the first thing is uh, if I can start where I was born, right? I was born in, uh, in Cameroon in a very small, uh, you know, not, not so wealthy area, if I may. Uh, and uh, basically, um, uh, you know, went uh, to, you know, preschool uh, and started the elementary school there. Um, you know, we were roughly 120 plus kids per class. You know, we didn't, uh, um, didn't really have internet in those days. And, um, uh, and after that, uh, uh, you know, I mean, while I was doing that, my, uh, at some point, my, my father actually, uh, decided to go and try his luck in Europe. So uh, my mom and I stayed behind. Um, um, and I think he arrived in Germany and then France. Uh, uh, and to be honest, uh, you know, his, uh, let's say his permit expired. <laughs> to, put, to put it, uh, uh, you know, uh, with a bit of poetry. Um, and um, and uh, so, he, he, you know, he was, he, he wanted to, you know, he's, he, he was passionate about music, so his parents didn't want him to do music, so he decided to go and music in, uh, 
in Europe, uh, and he was working, um, uh, you know, uh, in different, uh, you know, uh, small bands, to, you know, in uh, cabarets and, and things like that to entertain. And then he could justify a job and he got his papers. And then he, he ended up having my mother to join him. And then I joined, uh, uh, you know, um, as part of what you call in French, le, le regroupement familial, which is, uh, uh, you know, in the early 80s, uh, you know, with a lot of immigrants that were called to work, uh, you know, to, to fill uh, those gaps in jobs uh, uh, in Europe. And then they were allowed to bring their family around, across, which I was part of that, uh, whole, uh, uh, I would say, caravan, if I may. Um, so a, a, a defining moment, I would say, in, uh, when I was uh, in school was when I was in high school. Uh, um, you know, at the end of junior high school, the, the, the principal called my parents um, and, um, and told them, uh, your kids should stay in school. And my mom, you know, uh, it was not easy to be a, a a black family, let's say, at the time in Europe, right? Uh, immigrant um, and and from an immigrant family, let's say. So my mom was a bit, always a bit. Was uh, in Germany? It was in France, in Paris. In Paris, in Paris yeah. In, in Paris suburb, right? Um, and uh, so uh, basically, um, you know, uh, and then she thought, okay, why don't you want my child to? not to stay in the school, he's top of his class and he's turbulent, but it's not a reason to fire him. And the principal say, no, it has nothing to do with that. You know, your, your child is, is bored and I think uh, he needs to be in an environment that stimulates him, um, you know, intellectually, etc. So there was this school in Paris called uh, Lycée Boulogne, you might have heard of it, yeah. um, where, you know, uh, which is basically the best high school, I think, in France, uh, uh, and where many, let's say, French leaders and Nobel Prize came from. So I was sent there. I think I was the, yeah, probably the only, let's say, sub-Saharan African uh, at the time. Um, and it was a great experience for me because I was surrounded by uh, a lot of bright minds from across Europe, mostly, whose parents would have sent there uh, very, very, uh, indeed stimulating and um and that's also where i real when i realized how privileged i had been uh if i look back at where i was coming from um to the environment i found myself in now you know from a, a very humble background in the middle of a, of a, a third world country and a few years later to be a, among a, um some of the the prime elite of Europe, if I can, I mean, the prime upcoming elite the world, of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the world in many ways, yeah. Um, so, you know, because, because basically there, you know, we were targeting either the Fields Medal or, you know, you have a lot of, that was the mindset, you know, so it was very interesting. And then I thought I had a huge responsibility because I was extremely lucky to have been given that uh, chance and to also have had some people along the journey who sort of potentially believed in me. And as an African, for me, um, I told my mom that, you know, it was very interesting to see what they were doing. And she said, you know, uh, you, if you remember when you arrived in France uh, as a child, you were so impressed by the, 
level of uh, development, infrastructure, lifestyle, and you told me a few hours after the landing um, that one day you'll go back to Africa and you'll make sure it, it looks just like that. So I was, uh, it was quite an interesting moment. Uh, so I, I continued my journey, um, you know, as a, as a student, but uh, school was still boring, to be frankly honest. At least the way it was, uh, um, you know, even if academically it was going well, but I thought that, that was not enough for me. So uh, at 19, I started uh, my first uh, non-for-profit organization. That was called uh, Afrique Tandem. Um, and the idea, still based on that, uh, on that idea of giving back, was to gather young African students across Europe uh, to in an, in this organization to work together in doing skills transfers back to Africa, and also um, empower and accompany young students that would be arriving in Europe, so that uh, we could create a bit of a collective, working on um, you know really giving hope, but also uh, accelerating at our level the development of uh, the continent. So I was doing that in parallel to. Uh, my activities as a as a student, so I did class preparatoire, uh, and then uh, a French grand école, as they call it. Um, um, I decided to focus on business, uh, although I did love uh, math and science, um, because I, I really I believe that the real gap was in leadership, um, and uh, you know once you get the right type of leadership, then you can get science, technology, and everything else to flourish. So went to business school, um, majored in finance. And um, uh, so the, the, we did actually with that. Um, so I was kind of carrying on that activities with uh, those African students across Europe. And we did the first ever uh, uh, career forum uh, for uh, African diaspora to um, go back to Africa in, uh, and work in um, you know, in African companies or multinationals so that uh, we could give them the opportunity to go back and share their knowledge, their skills, and help the continent develop. So I was kind of, again, having this double life, uh, you know, at school during the day, and uh, it's been a very much of a, of a pattern, I have to say. We'll get to that later. Uh, and uh, basically, um, it, um, it grew to have like two, two, two plus, 200 plus students across Europe, ma mainly coming from some of the best uh, universities and schools, et cetera, uh, and really working towards uh, not only giving back, but uh, um, you know, start putting the premises of a knowledge-based society, really. That was in uh, the late 90s, no, let's say no, the early 2000s, late 90s, right? Um, uh, and internet was very nascent then, right? So when we, we kind of built libraries in Mali, in other African countries, we also um, uh, started sensitizing people around e-commerce even before it got big. So we could see that that would be the chance for you know, craftsmen, um, uh, small manufacturers, um, artists, to get the world to know that talent uh, by using the internet and using e-commerce as a way. Um, and we did like training and entrepreneurship competitions around uh, uh, internet and technology for Africa to embrace this new world. Uh, after I graduated, I mean, 
I was, uh, uh, I was actually very much uh, passionate, I mean, even before graduating, about telling the African story. Um, you know, I'm sure you would remember that article of The Economist that basically got all of us outraged about the hopeless continent. Um, and uh, the whole idea for us was to say, no, the continent is not hopeless. Actually, the continent is the hope of, um, of, um, of humanity in the next decades for the very reason that, uh, you know, we have the youngest population, 60% uh, of arable land, um, and um, also some strong values that uh, the Western world might have forgotten along the way, and that would become very handy when um, S hit the fan, if I may. So, um, which was based on the sense of a community, the sense of Ubuntu that I actually discovered myself later uh, without knowing that I was practicing it, right? So started working with um, um, KPMG um, in Paris. Um, you know, uh, it was a, a very good experience and it was mostly audit banking you know, uh, and financial services are institutions. So it really, really allowed me to go deep and understanding how the banking sector work, uh, how the financial institutions, insurance, uh, um, et cetera, uh, are structured from within. And it, it turned out to be handy, uh, let's say, two decades later when I, when I got into blockchain. Right, so that was the early 2000s. So um, after that, um, uh, was craving uh, more to be involved in development. Uh, actually, kind of was split between joining um, uh, some um, non-for-profit organization in Asia or Latin America, uh, like Action Contre la Faim or other, um, you know. Uh, NGOs uh, helping alleviating, uh, you know, uh, human crisis, whether it would be, um, uh, you know, related to conflict or related to famine, actually, right? And um, and then finally, I decided that uh, I wanted to make more of a structural change than a topical change. So, and with my background, I would have more impact on. Uh, and having a structural impact. So, um, as a, with you know, with a finance background and a, ma and a master in finance, etc., many of my friends from that major actually uh, went to work with, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs, uh, J.P. Morgan, and so on. And uh, um, and I wasn't so tempted, although there was, uh, you know, the opportunity was there. I thought. Um, First, I didn't have much of a, of a focus on development or emerging markets that were not, uh, let's say, mature enough. Um, uh, and then, uh, but I still wanted to, uh, to uh, have an impact through investments and through advisory. And at the time, um, uh, you know, BNP Paribas, I mean, 40s then, uh, were acquired by BNP Paribas. Uh, was uh, had this Africa division, so I decided, uh, you know, to 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 uh, um, join them. And it was a very very good experience because um, that's when I realized that um, I could do government advisory, 
uh, help on privatization sector restructuring, but I also could do mergers and acquisitions, uh, helping large uh, multinationals expand into Africa, but also helping African emerging uh, leading entrepreneurs, um, like uh, at the time, Miko Raitare, or we also worked uh, with uh, Negev Sereris uh, uh, from Moraskom, and uh, one in particular also that uh, uh, we worked with was Mo Ibrahim, um, uh, who founded Celtel that you might have heard of. And uh, the one that is probably most renowned that I worked closely with, uh, you know, as an advisor with our firm and helped him structure his first large project was Ali Kodangote, right? So, and it was a time where, you know, um, Africa was barely getting into the, the scene, the international scene as, a, in a, as an attractive investment destination. And there was a need uh, that was fairly obvious in terms of uh, accompanying those governments. Uh, you know, it was after the structural adjustment plans from IMF, World Bank, and so on. Um, and yeah, so spent quite a few years traveling across the continent uh, and across around the world, actually, uh, talking to investors, um, uh, raising capital for projects and so on. Uh, and on the one that we were working on with Ali Kodangote uh, uh, on, his, on his cement plant, Obajana, uh, we, we, we got IFC, uh, the World Bank, actually interested. So we went to Washington, made a presentation, and and uh, and then after that, um, they actually approached the World Bank. Actually, approached me, and uh, um, which was the director at the time, Thierry Tano, uh, um, and and his team um, uh, offered actually to um, offered me to join the the World Bank, and I've seen particular because there 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 was they had set some great ambitions for Africa, and they wanted people like me to. To, to join them. So uh, I went to Johannesburg uh, to the head office. So I was basically working mostly in Johannesburg, but spending a lot of time in Washington at the headquarters. Um, and when I left, when I went to board that plane, uh, I remember my mother telling me, so your childhood dream, it looks like it's, it's coming along. You're going back uh, to Africa and uh, and you're going to be working on development, etc. I said, hey, I don't know, but it looks like at least I was, I was true to myself, you know. And yeah, landed in uh, Johannesburg. Uh, how much detail do you want? Because I could go for, for hours, huh? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's actually so, very inspiring. Uh, <laughs> Ten minutes. <laughs> okay, no, we anyway, are, it's but, okay. No, so, so, summarize this. Anyway, you'll cut, actually. right? You'll, you'll yeah, edit. No, uh, no, no, <laughs> no. So far, there's nothing to cut. It's wonderful. Continue. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, so started working uh, with IFC, um, uh, very, very impressive organization, of course, uh, a strong development mandate. Um, and I did, you know, a lot of projects in the beginning, you, you do a bit of everything. So agriculture, infrastructure, and then I, de I decided to focus on telecom media technologies. Why? For the simple reason that if I looked at my background, right? Um, I also understood that not every child will ever necessarily have that opportunity to be taken on a flight uh, and land in Paris and, um, you know, get uh, the best kind of education in the world uh, and the kind of access I got. 
So how do we create a level playing field? How do we make sure that everyone work, get equal opportunity regardless of their wealth at birth or their location at birth, right? So, and technology for me was that equalizer. Technology and um, telecommunications and um, education and content were that very opportunity that could make sure that you don't get penalized because of the color of your skin, the origins of your parents, and the land you were born at, in, right? So I decided to focus on that, telecom media technologies uh, with IFC and, uh, and with, a mandate, uh, with a development mandate, right? And um, so as I did that, you know, um, what was very interesting is that it was the beginning of, so I was part of the early wave of uh, GSM telecommunications, right? Um, because we basically were advising or raising capital for some of the first telecom licenses in Nigeria with MTN and on many other countries uh, where we basically had to demonstrate to the world when we were pitching it, right? And even before IFC, when I was in, uh, with uh, BNP Paribas in Paris, that actually Africa will leapfrog. And nobody believed us, right? Because so when I would do the whole business plan and the financial model uh, based on assumptions and scenarios, I would go and see some of those big banks uh, or investors um, in Europe, uh, in America, in the Middle East, and say, um, okay, we think um, uh, this country will go to 10% penetration, which means, let's say, go from... Uh, uh, zero to, you know, 500,000 subscribers in the next seven years, right? Uh, and everybody were like, look, you know, Africa, uh, you know, this country is barely at, uh, let's say, 100,000 mobile, I mean, fixed lines, and it did that in 30 years. How do you expect, you know, uh, them to reach 500,000 subscribers in, uh, in seven? which is, you know, and I explained that it's, uh, it's the question of opportunity and, and convenience, right? Um, and of course, so it was hard to raise the capital because there was, this time there was an asymmetry of information, but reversed in the sense that we knew the market, we knew what the customers and the, the people needed phones because that was the only way to get access, not only to information, but to communicate and trade. So it was a life uh, condition for them. Guess what? Um, after seven years, you know, those count, those, our provisions actually were multiplied. I mean, so if, if, instead of 500,000, they were at, at, at 4 million, right? In most countries, it was four times exceeding whatever anybody would have, um, would have expected. And also because the informal economy is not accounted for at all. So it was a very interesting experience and I understood then that if we bring technology, people will adopt, right? Um, and why will they adopt is because it's their chance to escape poverty, right? If you create opportunities for people through technology, then it becomes a lifesaver.
right? Uh, regardless of the government policy or anything. So as we did that, um, you know, uh, the next wave for me that I could see coming uh, was mobile money, right? Because uh, at the time, and it was like early 2000, 2004, three, four, five, moving money was a challenge, right? The banking penetration was a problem. It was a cash economy, and uh, you would need like literally cases of cash to make or to make transactions in many places. And there was no infrastructure and quality of roads, et cetera. So banking the way we knew it, in my opinion at the time, was will not fly. You needed to digitize this whole thing, especially that everybody now had, a, I mean, many people had a mobile, right? And today we're talking about 89% of adults who have a mobile phone. And you're talking about uh, a smartphone penetration in the next four years, that will reach three-fourths of the population, right? So they have a laptop now. Everybody will have a laptop on their phone. But then the point was, how do you effectively transact? How do you, um, um, you know, have a chance to uh, send money to someone uh, that, are, that is at 100 kilometers um, uh, and uh, without having to wait three days for the bank to process it knowing that you don't even have a bank account. So mobile, mobile money. And I made the first investment in the world, actually, in mobile money. Uh, and I was involved in the very early days with the M-Pesa management team when they were starting the project, right? Um, and, and, and that, for me, was a great experience because it was the second time I was proven right. <laughs> no, fantastic. So, so in terms of understanding... Sorry? No, no, no. Keep, so keeping on that, and I'm particularly interested. So you have this history and it's a fantastic life story. And I think as well, very inspir inspirational. But so when you came back to Africa, um, yeah. and I think this is important to right now, probably go into the part two. So when did you decide to start uh, your main projects like Africa 2.0? It was exactly at that time. Because you, you are yes, still in the bridge it, between it, in, in corporate and investor and as well a social impact. Exactly. Yeah, so that was the, very, that was the, exact, the exact time. It was a bit later, actually, um, when I understood that actually technology alone will not solve it. <laughs> yes, that's very important. <laughs> right? And once again, I was back to this conclusion that you need to have the right environment and you need to have vision and leadership, right? And uh, it was also at the time where I was getting a bit frustrated with the World Bank in many ways, right? With the group and with some uh, uh, perception and um, uh, I won't call it the Washington consensus, but something not too far from that in the sense that there, I, I, I didn't believe that there was only one way and a one size fits all um, to address uh, the problems of development. I believe that development should be and could be solved uh, through a co-creation model where stakeholders come together and actually provide solutions that are adapted to the environment. So then I decided, okay, there's a lot of talents on this continent. Um, we need to do something. And guess what? You had the World Cup in South Africa at the time, right? So it was the African World Cup. Um, and a few months, you know, six, four months before, everybody was calling me because, it, and those were all the contacts I'd met across my career, right? So some CEOs, 
some head uh, head of funds, some uh, you know young also leaders, etc., who would know me as the point of contact, and would say, okay, can you get me tickets? Can you get me a hotel? And I'm, and I said, okay, guys, I'm not a travel agent, but if you guys are going to be coming all here, then let's make something about it, right? Um, I think uh, it's not every day that we have so many bright minds that are going to be located in one, that are going to be concentrated in one location. So let's get together. You can still watch the game, but let's look at what are the problems that Africa is facing and how can we work together to solve them? And then they actually like the concept, right? You know, um, um, so uh, then I started organizing this conference in margins of the semifinal and finals. That was an itinerant conference where we'd all gather. Um, and uh, at the time also, I had the great support, I have to say, from Gracia Michel in particular, uh, who really uh, believed in uh, the responsibility of the next generation and empowering them. So she, she helped tremendously. Um, Nelson Mandela also was, uh, was really encouraging. Uh, I, I was lucky and privileged to have met him and he really loved, uh, uh, he and his wife really loved uh, what we were doing. Um, and uh, a few leaders in South Africa, like uh, Trevor Manuel came to inaugurate our forum. Um, also Mampele Mampele and um, Jeff Rothschild also, who was the, the head of uh, you know, government affairs at the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. So we had business, uh, we had politics, uh, we had civil society and we have entrepreneurs that were all gathered to say, okay, what are the key problems that this continent is facing? How can we unlock it? Then we, we would do the conference and then go and watch the games, right? Uh, either on TV or on the stadium. <laughs> we didn't all get tickets, but that's a side story. Um, and then after the, after the final, we looked at Spain won, if you remember, right? And then we gathered the next day and said, okay, now we have identified all the problems of this continent. At least the main, the most pressing issues, right? Um, so we need a vision. We need a vision that will tackle those issues and uh, propose a key action plan to be executed to really unlock the potential of the African continent. Um, and um, so we gathered and we said, okay, then we're going to need, we, we, it's nice to have those ideas, but we can't just stop here. We need a vehicle that's going to be driving that vision and, and be a think tank, a think tank that does things that will ultimately, um, you know, uh, help be that agent of change uh, across the continent because we do have the access, we have the knowledge, we have the network, uh, and we're willing to put time to this. So, what are we building? The next version of Africa. So what name should we have? Africa 2.0, Africa 2.0. That's how it started. And, um, and then we decided that we needed to articulate that vision into a manifesto. So we work, uh, the different members work from 60 different locations to basically draft that manifesto. Everybody, everyone had their sections, sub teams, etc. So that was the beginning of a Google Doc on paper if I may, right? So, um, and then we produced that manifesto um, collectively, we reviewed it and then went to the, uh, um, went to present it after a year and a half after we, we started the initiative, we went to present it at the African Union. So we had a delegation going and presenting and requesting that um, it's important to, for Africa to have 
an agenda and a vision that we can all gather around and drive. So uh, we engage with uh, heads of state, decision makers, who also presented in Davos at the World Economic Forum. And the vision was basically based on some, on some key pillars and more importantly on some cross-cutting themes in terms of who is going to drive it, the youth, women, diaspora, and technology. And um, you know, one was about uplifting Africans, second about um, uh, upgrading infrastructure, third was about um, um, you know, uh, promoting um, an, an enabling environment, and, and fourth was about uh, one Africa, united Africa, right? And uh, two years later, I mean, we had a conference maybe you know, six months later after presenting it to the leaders, and then the African Union actually sent a delegation to our next gathering. And, and, uh, in, and two years later, the African Union officially presented Agenda 2063 that, um, that was basically a vision for Africa over, over the next decades. I was ratified later on by the African heads of states. So that was the first victory for us. One of the key recommendations. Well, what was the date? What was the date on that? So just uh, going. It was in, it was uh, in uh, in uh, 2014, if my memory is correct. Let me check. Uh, yeah. So Sorry, was, we will we'll pick it up towards us. So yeah, but it was it was three years later. So 2014, 2015. So it's been proposed in 2014 and ratified in 2015. Right. Um, so. And that was um, a very good experience because it was, I mean, that was one of our first victory. But even before that, the manifesto was um, approved by 43 ministers of education from the 44 countries. That was a year after we published it. Um, and, That's impressive, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, so, so that was a, a, real, uh, a real journey. And one of the key things that uh, rec recommended in a manifesto was, um, um, uh, you know, the Africa free trade area. And uh, that, it, it, was, it was a very important point for us. And um, basically, um, in 2018, um, and um, actually I finally saw the launch of the African Continental Free Trade Area, ratified by 26 countries. And as of December 2019, 54 out of 55 countries ratified the treaty, make, making Africa Con Continental Free Trade Agreement the largest trade area and landmass in the world. That's impressive. So, so Ken, let, let's pick on that because I think that's very important because that is not so well known in the Western world. And I think it's, it's bearing in mind that Africa definitely is going to be the biggest, uh, well, geographic is already massive, but as well in terms of population, in terms of uh, young population. So how would you see now that you achieve that political massive victory, which is still very recent because 2014 and 2019, we still very fresh. And now we are going as well through a massive challenge with COVID-19 and all these things. So how are you seeing right now the political work? And I love that you've been always looking at the, the vision, the structure, but as well put it in practice and as well the technology, which is very, it's an important thing that even in Europe, most of our leaders, they don't know anything about technology. And actually it's a big challenge. So we have to have the three or four things aligned. So how you yeah. see that right now, that work of both your work in Africa 2.0, but as well 
right now going from the theory to make it practice? So, um, you know, the, what is important, you mentioned the combination of all, is that we actually used what we are made for as Africans. Uh, and we come from, from a cultural point of view. Uh, and that has somehow been a bit disrupted uh, during um, colonization, of course, but is that at, at our very essence, we believe and leave Ubuntu. And um, where, where the collective is the, the key to the success of the individual and where the role of the individual is to act as part of that collective, right? So the manifesto itself and the strategy and the advocacy strategy of Africa 2.0 was based on a social contract between stakeholders. So that it's something that we all believe in and that we can all push, right? And technology, of course, is key. So the next step for us, and uh, uh, when it comes to that, is to continue keeping that very model. Because we also seeing the limits of an individualistic based approach, right? And we believe that um, with all the crisis coming, coming and spreading, etc., it has highlighted our interdependence. And that's why we're launching this Ubuntu Love Challenge in the sense that we need to remember that what we share is a DNA and a planet, whether we want it or not. Right? And as such, we have a responsibility and there is an intrinsic interconnection among us that makes our humanity to co-create or to destruct, right? Um, and, um, and that consciousness needs to come back in the forefront, right? You know, like the long-term for the community versus the short-term for the individual. Um, and um, so what we think also is that we're going to need to go back to what value system do we want for the world of tomorrow. And I think this COVID-19 invites us, and we've had those conversations with the members of Africa 2.0, but also beyond uh, the African region. Uh, for instance, Sheikh Abodur Al-Hasimi, uh, who is uh, launching and working with me on this uh, Ubuntu Love Challenge initiative, is also a strong proponent of this new philosophy and those new values. And we see that actually when you're human, it actually makes sense if you go deep inside. So as we're transitioning, and as this COVID-19 has been an eye-opener for all of us about um, the necessity to uh, you know, address, uh, you know, first recover intrinsic power because we do have anybody has the capacity and can be defined in four things. By what we think, what, or you know, basically what we think or know or believe in, right? The second one, we define also by our actions. You know, what we do and the legacy we live in a lifetime and uh, what we do to others. We've thirdly defined by our emotions, how we feel and how we make people feel. The fourth element, and across any place in the planet, is also we are defined by our network, our family, our colleagues, our friends, uh, our, our country, city, community, region. So it means that anybody, regardless of their wealth or knowledge, can bring something to the table. There is no subhumans here. If we un un finally understand that, and you can see it, we are moving 
to a, a data-driven society. Now, guess what? If you are, let's project in 2030 or 2050. 2050, you have four, you have a planet with basically two billion Africans. And out of it, seven out of 10 youth will be from Africa. If you need data, where are you gonna go? Even if they're poor as, as, as hell, you're gonna need data. So the rules are changing and are being redefined. And the question that everybody is being asked now is, do, you wanna, do we wanna carry on like this? Or should we pause, you know, should we take a step back and rethink the world we want to build and the direction we want to take collectively, right? And um, so in the case of Africa 2.0, our immediate action now is what should we do post COVID-19? And we've prepared a report that we'll be sharing actually next week um, to uh, decision makers and to anybody who wants to to get it, and it's been combined. Uh, I mean, it's been uh, compilate uh, the compilation of contributions from different of our members across the continent, and it's people like you and I. It's uh, but also you have farmers, entrepreneurs, advisors, professionals who all have their own realities on the ground and can provide solutions. I think the solutions of tomorrow will not be decided in, a, in between closed door at the, at the 33rd floor of a building, right? And, uh, and that's where I think we're seeing because we're all more and more interconnected with internet, right? So, and we've made a key list of recommendations that we're gonna be sharing. And I think, um, the point is everybody can contribute and uh, those contributions are homegrown solution, right? No one size fits all and that are adapted to some, to some realities. And actually we believe there are a lot of opportunities that can come out of this crisis if we ask ourselves the right question and review some, some fundamentals. So, so on that level, let's just, so that, do you see this manifesto as the Ubuntu love challenge or that is a separate initiative? No, it's separate. So it's, what is it? No, actually the manifesto that we produced was 10 years ago for Africa 2.0, but the, the new report that Africa 2.0 is produced is more Africa focused, right? The Ubuntu love challenge is more a way to remind people that if we give into fear, right, we are basically lowering our vibrations and get more vulnerable, not only to the, to the virus, but also more inclined to fall into hopelessness, right? While if we adopt the energy, the vibration, and the mindset of love for one another, love for self, and understanding the importance of our interconnectedness, we have much more chances to overcome this global challenge. So what we aim at doing with the Ubuntu Love Challenge as a, as a phase one is to create an environment where people <coughs> could show an act of kindness, proof of interdependence and solidarity around them because we are fully aware that the consequences 
of this pandemic, you know, terms of socioeconomic results will be really damaging. And the need for preparedness, and there's a need for global collaboration from the grassroots up, right? So, and so I, I want to, sorry, interrupt, but I think on, on that level, level I, I love uh, especially the concept of Ubuntu, but as well, okay. you've been talking and all your work and as well the work of Africa 2.0 is this sense of creating a narrative that is about hope and the interconnectedness, but as well solutions. Um, so we, how do you see right now, especially in, in the Western world, we're seeing a big um, questioning of leadership and the lack of narratives that are more positive. Uh, if you see most of Europe is very divided, the US, I'm not going even to talk about it. And then of course, there's a blame game in all these things. And I think Africa, like you mentioned, you are one of the leaders as well as a huge voice because like you said, two billion people, the young people in the world, the data is going to come from there. And as well, the innovation for instance, so Jack Dorsey recently just moving, is moving actually to Africa. to Africa. So yeah, how do you see this? pandemic coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but how do you see the, so from a, a practicality, because I think in the end of the day, like you said, we vision without action it's it's um well it doesn't yeah. really do anything but as well you touch you touch technology and blockchain so how are you trying to look at these things together because this is very important if you put things together but as well if you make tools for people to use okay so here is a blockchain for me let's go back a bit to history yeah uh what internet did it disrupted knowledge what e-commerce did it disrupted industries if you think of amazon and so on what blockchain will do will be to disrupt economies why simple if you have today the opportunity to provide full traceability of a product right if you can do a transaction without a center party whose integrity could be questioned if you have the opportunity to basically also have access to anyone in the world and transact with anybody in the world without any kind of restriction then if you also have the opportunity to be able to raise capital from anywhere in the world and not just through centralized institutions by giving comfort that your business is run on the blockchain and that the data that you're providing are accurate immutable you disrupt economies and give an equal opportunity for anyone to actually compete and that's why I think blockchain is going to be critical in the decades to come. And that's why we decided to launch Ubuntu Tribe, right? And Ubuntu Tribe came from this very simple idea, right? As you know, I'm from Africa. And at the end of the day, it's probably, if not the richest, I'd say one of the richest 
continent in the world. But yet, people see us as poor, right? There's a mismatch. Yes. Now, this, how do you address this mismatch? Let's say we got 40% of the gold resource, we got diamonds, oil, you name it. Wood, land, we poor. Okay, leadership didn't help. Uh, inter international geopolitics didn't help, fine. But what if we made those resources a currency? What if we said, okay, I have gold, instead of me just selling it and you give me paper that might depreciate because I have, let's say, Ghana CDs or South African rands, or then no, I'll give it to you and we'll trade out of it, right? Then I'll make the actual gold or the reserves, uh, you know, or the other assets at a trading element, you know, a medium of exchange. That's a game changer. So that's what we did with Ubuntu Tribe. It's like, there's another thing about gold. It's like, it's concentrated in a very limited number of hands. Nothing wrong with that. But what if we also allow others to access it? So we've digitized gold in a way to democratize it so that anybody can access it for five cents, including Africans, Asians, Europeans, anyone. Now, in the context of a big crisis, five cents might mean a lot. And in the context of big crisis, gold has always gained significant value. So maybe it's a cushion that we're working on to alleviate some of the big things that might come across down the road. You know, if there's no infrastructure, then you might want to go digital. If infrastructure is broken for natural catastrophe or because we all locked in a, on a lockdown, you still want to transact. Right? So we've created Ubuntu Tribe in that vision of creating an environment based on digital asset investment and trading for a shared economy, borderless, where what is in your soil actually has value because it always had, but it hasn't necessarily always reflected. For those who can't have proper savings, right? For those who struggle to access digital education across all those emerging markets, they don't have a credit card, but what if they could pay in digital gold that they just get on their phone? It changes everything, right? Now, everybody has a right to education. Payment is no longer a barrier. And why gold is interesting is that it's that one metal that anybody in the world is willing to take. So I'm, I'm hearing that uh, you know some of those great powers also are, might be considering to go back to the gold standard. So let's see how it goes. So on that level, sir, I want to touch that because that's a very important thing. Because I think this is a challenge that is not just for Africa; it's for the rest of the world. And I think. Uh, to be honest, it's, I think Africa Ubuntu can lead this. Yeah, it can lead this. Ubuntu tribe well. means the human tribe. Ubuntu yeah, tribe exactly. means the human tribe. Yeah. Ubuntu means humanity. It's a 
give from Africa to the world to make it better. No, and I think picking on that level, and I think your experience in leadership, uh, I know that is is uh, is focused mostly in Africa. But one of the challenges we're facing, if you look at the US, I'm a young global leader with the World Economic Forum, though. Exactly, um, we I know. Work a lot of work together. So, in 2015, no, no. I was. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot. No, of I, I didn't mention that. <laughs> yeah, the, so one thing yeah. on that, I know that you're working with the World Economic Forum, with World Bank and a lot of these things, but one of the things that is happening, if you look at the world economy, is that this challenge right now is completely global. Okay, so if you look at, there's 26 million employees in, in the US, uh, that, well, it's the official numbers, there's probably, uh, I think, one in six people in the, U, in the UK, for instance, are right now furloughed. Uh, that means they are supported by the government. And if you look at the rest of the world, of course, Africa doesn't have this infrastructure even, but has other challenges. But the challenge is that this is kind of, first of all, highlighting, like you said, the technology, the digital challenge, but as well the opportunity to really come up with a better, like you said, preparedness to get into this. So how are you trying to take this? Because this is something that I think everyone should look at your experience. But as well, we need to repeat the message. Education comes from the Latin word repetere, that gave the word uh, yeah, repeat nice. in English. But it, the idea yeah. of repeating the message, and I think this is a very important thing, and I want to highlight this, because probably if you look at the technology and these things to create digital assets, digital education, we might be able to leapfrog. And I think Africa doesn't have the, the legacy system, so it can go much faster and rebuild things from the scratch because they don't need to be going through 10 years or 20 years of different technologies. They don't talk with each other and so forth. So have you have started already putting things on that together? This is one of our visions as well for this project. So that's the whole point, right? So the, the ultimate goal um, of uh, Ubuntu Tribe is make sure that we can enable um, united, prosperous, and enlightened global society. This is critical for us. And what the points you made in terms of poverty and employment, it, it's exactly that, right? So we've been working on a platform and we're looking for partners. So maybe we should definitely talk, right? Where we could have this opportunity for anybody on the, on, on the planet, on the internet, who want to imagine the new world, to actually come and co-create it, right? And the experience from Africa 2.0 has been very, very helpful because we've been able to achieve significant results at a time where there was no blockchain, there was limited bandwidth, etc., right? So now we have all the tools from a technology point of view, and we have the, that global problem that is forcing all of us to rethink, to ponder, reevaluate, and rebuild. Unfortunately, in human history, if you look, right, you, there's been always a need for a crisis for people to awaken. First World War, Society of Nations, Woodward Wilson. Second World War, United Nations, Bretton Woods institutions. Hopefully we're not in a world war and hopefully we don't get into one. Yeah. And let's not wait for one to happen to wake, to wake up. 
And this work that I've been doing with uh, Ubuntu Tribe and with the Ubuntu philosophy inspired to me by people like Nelson Mandela, to be frankly honest, right? And by staying in South Africa. And also, if you look at Ubuntu, forgive me the digression, you have the same word in, in, in Kini Rwanda, in Rwanda, that says Umubuntu, that means the humans. Utu in Swahili, that means a humanity. Abatu in the Lingala, that means the humans, right? So that's what it means. And I think what we've been called upon is that the world needs those values today. Let's go back to our humanity, right? Let's go back to this very essence of what keeps us together. So let's hope, and the preparedness for me, I started it in maybe 10 years ago with Africa 2.0 and to prepare, how do we get 55 countries to go in one direction by just getting a bunch of young leaders come up with ideas and suggestions. How do, how do you get a hundred and three, four, five, six hundred people to push in a direction that could influence 1.2 billion? And I think that's the credit and I need to give that to my team and to those who believed, right? Um, and that's somehow, we can't claim the full credit for all those decisions, but we certainly know we've had an influence. And I think at global scale now, it might be that time to come with solutions and start co-creating, right? And uh, so, so, yeah. No, no, this is amazing. And um, um, as you mentioned, as you saw, I, I'm quite, uh, quite excited about this because I, I really believe on this. And actually, for instance, my last book, there was uh, 4AR, um, Blockchain AI and, and uh, IoT and FinTech, How to Reinvent or Reinventing Nations, came out of my frustration and as well the lack of understanding technology as tools, like you said, to co-create. And I think I love the, the, fo the focus on co-create. So how, let's, let's, let's say, someone that is out here in the UK, there's a huge um, communities, multi-ethical multi communities, a lot of Africans that we have all over the world. So how do you see right now, let's say, young leaders around the world that are interested to come to, um, to Africa 2.0, or even to join Ubuntu Tribe, what would be your message? Because we need this leadership that you, that you are showing, but we need to get it bigger on digital. Because for instance, if you see right now, and I want to be provocative in a good way with you, if you see people like Bill Gates, they have more followers than sometimes governments. Um, and even for instance, you work with the World Economic Forum, they do a fantastic work on social media. And you have to have the messaging, the tools, but then you have to have the capacity to put it in practice, which is not easy. Uh, building technology and make it happen is not an easy task. So how do, uh, probably just provoking you, but as well trying to show this uh, to the rest of the people that are listening to this, or they will listen to this interview, and as well uh, want to know about your project, about you, about different things. So my answer is, um, uh, I'll go back to technology, right? What you've seen over the past, so we are actually experiencing a very new generation globally. Um, is the open source generation, right? So what is happening, and I'm seeing it even with you guys, right? Is that you do have a lot of people separately working on different kind of projects, right? 
And many of them have adopted this idea that they will make the project open. So we're moving for the closed world, behind closed doors, so with a lot of mystery to a world, and you can see it's the same for blockchain, with to more an open world where everybody comes and contributes something. The Ubuntu is already there, right? Actually, that's, that's the reason why uh, Linux hold a platform like that, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, and what I see coming, uh, really, it's gonna be, we uh, we entering in a, in an epoch or era of decentralized collective response to some global challenges and to some alliances of like-minded people sharing the same values at thousands of thousands of kilometers away but coming together to work on a common problem. And this is, I think, is the hope of our society of the world for the next coming years. Because, you know, Bill Gates might have millions of followers, but a couple of billion people might share the same vision and idea. No, 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 I just use this as an and, example. And then they co-create. No, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know, I know perfectly. <laughs> so, and might, and might just come, once you have that thing that drives them, which is change or progress, then you let human creativity express itself organically. But you need that one thing that rally all of them. And you have two ways to unite the people common enemy or a common goal or ambition. The first one is easy to do. You can construct it. You can build and construct an enemy. An ideal is harder to take down. So if there is that ideal or that dream, common dream, common world, common vision coming up, you can have differences about how it's being done, but you can be united about the need to see it happen. And I completely, and this, coming back to Nelson Mandela, so one of the things that I loved, uh, I did a lot of research about him, and one of the things that he made that really unites South Africa was precisely the, the, the sports. So unite people. From, yeah, the rugby. Uh, uh, that, the rugby, but as well the they idea They were not of, good enough at football by then. <laughs> no, but, but it was... Uh, <laughs> no, I understand. Sorry, I'm from Cameroon. You know, football is a religion back No, then, you so guys are very I good. I had to pick my South African brothers. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, that point precisely for us, the idea of the sports, the idea of things, like you said, because at the sports, moment... Sports, culture, you, music. Exactly the point, yeah. And your father Look, is a musician, uh, so, yeah. My dad is a musician and very young, very early. So I used to do... I, uh, I was maybe a bit of a non-traditional kid, but uh, I used to do my homework in studio just to, to, to be with my dad, right? So, but I've learned one thing very young is the power of frequency. The power of emitting a vibration that can affect human emotions. Very young. And once you understand those things, it helps you a lot. And now you understand the power of music. Now you understand the power of sports. Right. Um, let me give you an example. 
that uh, many people don't know. Um, Bob Marley, actually, it's a friend of mine, uh, DJ Morita, who works with Pulling the Gang, who, who shared that story with me. So at the time in, uh, in Kingston, uh, there was two major factions, right? Like ready to kill each other, ready literally to kind of end with one another. So, um, and, uh, and then, but they did love that artist called, he did, decided to do a concert, but people said, you know, they're gonna shoot you. you. You're risking your life because, you know, this is not done and your lyrics and this and that, you know? And he said, look, I'll go on stage because I might as well die spreading love. And what was very powerful in what he did, he had the two leaders of both factions holding their hands and holding hands under that one song. One love, one heart, let's get together and feel all right. So yes, the power of frequency, the power of vibration. And uh, I have hope. No, I, I love that. Uh, that's actually beautiful. So, so in, in terms of we're passing one hour, but I want to just one or two more questions if you are still time. So sure. I think this is actually critical because I think we're losing this. I think at the moment we have, uh, I think, special exactly leadership. We, we, yeah. It's, uh, and I think it would be good for you to as well position that more visible, more louder and more repeating because we need, we need definitely that. I think if you see the news, at the moment, the mainstream news is really very negative. It's like you said, focus on the, the, the common enemy that is blaming people for things, and especially because of some leaders we have. But coming back to the more hope vision, which I love from you, and I think uh, which you are doing as well in action. So coming back to Africa 2.0, to the initiatives like the Ubuntu tribe, which is a wonderful um, uh, vision, how are you right now going into the practice? And I think this is where entrepreneurs, technology people, like I said, the billions of people that are silent and they're the ones actually doing things and uniting, helping communities. How can you, how are you seeing as well from your experience, uh, creating common goals for 55 companies? What can right now? Look, you're right on one thing. Entrepreneurs are the ones who are going to change the world. And you can see the recent trends, right? And I think the whole trend started uh, very much in the 90s. Um, Steve Jobs, I mean, you see those big mega companies that have come up, right? Google, they've changed the world, Facebook, in many ways. Now, it was based on some form of consensus of, okay, we like those guys, we'll push them, they'll change. Now, if you, Imagine the multiplier effect that you can have again with decentralized finance for entrepreneurs spread, you know, not everybody has a chance to go and be in the Silicon Valley. But if all those entrepreneurs worldwide through decentralized finance, digital funding, digital crowdfunding could be given the same chances think of the multiplier effect that they could have in their communities, in their world. Why? Because you're powering up their ideas, right? And the only successful businesses, unless when they're imposed to you artificially, are the ones that make a difference in people's lives. 
Absolutely. If you make a difference in people's life, it will work. As long as you have integrity, as long as your business is managed transparently, and that's the power of blockchain, and you have a community that supports you and that needs it. It's like uh, the model of Ubuntu tribe is actually based on the fact that whomever owns the coin has a right to shares in the business. It's a reward so, system in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a reward community-based system that ultimately evolves into a decentralized autonomous organization. So and you build already the coin, what's the stage on that level for the people that are listening to the, the interview? The, the platform is built, at least uh, from a, you know, a technology point of view. You know, we, uh, we starting with uh, one blockchain, we're, gonna, we're looking at being, uh, you know, at opening up to different other uh, technology. We have partners, um, you know, mobile, even uh, some also financial institutions. Uh, we also have secured significant amount of gold across the continent. Uh, through contracts, um, you know, uh, and we're comfortable that uh, uh, by uh, by the next few months, by the end of the year, we'll probably have uh, an equivalent to, you know, half billion dollar of gold, uh, so gold supply contracts um, that uh, will allow people to buy digital gold. Um, we also um, have a very unique technology that allows um, African um, or other miners, because we also have partnership with gold mines in Canada. Uh, we're looking at a few others in Latin America and in Asia, right? But we look at a mercury-free mining. And we have a technology that allows artisanal miners or small-scale mine to extract their gold without the use of mercury and increase production by 15 to 25%. So we want to also redistribute wealth across the value chain while providing a clean environment and a clean support. And 5% of our transaction goes back to educate, uh, of transaction fees across the platform, goes back to you know, uh, support um, social projects, education, healthcare, um, not only also with those, uh, within those communities, but also with the buyer's community. And you were saying earlier, talking about you know the 36 million jobs lost in the you know in the U.S. and uh, one out of six uh, U.K. citizen living on the back of the government and being neat. So we also keep a portion of the transaction fees to be redistributed where from the, in the communities where the transactions were emitted from, so that ultimately those using the blockchain, then you have then some funds that you can use to have an impact locally and make a difference. So it's, it's really a, a systemic approach that we develop based on what mother nature has to offer, to offer. And that's really where we need to go back to as humans. This is like, let's value again what created us and what we live around with instead of wasting it and put artificial value to it, right? Now, if you, can, if you can then, as a business, do that, then you have a, you, you, you're really making a difference, but you're doing good and doing well. And I think that's the model that would actually survive. Because if you're not 
profitable, you out. If you destroy your environment or wealth or, or, or just keep it for a very small group, then your own sustainability is at stake. So the real model, and that's why we called our company Ubuntu, is what is the real model that gets humanity to, to be sustainable? Right, so and from a business point of view, yes, we're doing our, our, our STO in a few months, security token offering, um, and uh, we uh, we we already are talking to quite a few investors who have started their data room. As you know, I've, I've been in the investment space for 20 years. So, um, and uh, what we really have is that the product is ready to go, uh, and we had a choice. You know, we were supposed to launch in April, April May. And we decided that first it wasn't the right time, but it was better to focus on our energy on what we stand for, hence pushing the Ubuntu Love Challenge, hence reminding people what makes us human, right? Because there's no point selling products to an extent civilization. And just uh, for this part, I would like to, I think it's interesting for our audience as well to promote some, and we'll wrap up in a while, but. So in terms of the project, so this is the, the project that we're talking, is the Ubuntu tribe, the, the coin and the STO? Yeah, Ubuntu tribe, yeah. It's uh, one. Okay. Because I think this is very -E important. U-T-R-I-B-E dot O-N-E, one. Okay, very interesting. And, and for instance, this part here, so this is kind of a platform for all Africa. It's going to be based in one country. It's available everywhere wise. in the world. That's the beauty of uh, internet, right? So anybody in the world will be able to buy a, a, a gold-backed digital asset. And we have two tokens. We have one that is 100% gold-backed. And we have another one that is an investment product, a tokenized convertible warrant where you can invest. We use 80% to buy gold and 20% for OPEX. But more importantly, you have a right after one year to claim the gold back at a 5% discount for the 80% value that you had. And after three years, you can claim it back with a 15% discount. And at the three year anniversary, you can decide to claim it back or to convert it into shares of the company. That's so a, you a downside protection in your investment. Why? Because you always have the underlying asset that we keep and because we expand adoption and usage and get uh, and then get the transactions out of that then the, the token is actually traded so you can actually trade it from day one right or if you don't trade it you can keep it for a year and uh, if you don't if you're not happy with the performance you have a downside protection that you can always convert into gold so those are the two key main products that we have uh, while we build an environment where people can trade from their phone which is where we think the world is going. Oh, very, very interesting. And uh, we'll put information about that during the, the article. So to, to wrap up, and I think we are, we passed one hour right now in 15 minutes, so more than the 60, but I think it's a very important area in the interview. So in terms of this uh, vision, which I think it's your focus, so this will be, how do you align the Africa 2.0, the Ubuntu, the Ubuntu tribe, uh, the U tribe point one? And the different projects, just to wrap up for people that are listening to you right now. Um, I would call that as it's lateral thinking. Okay. I would, the principles, so 
most people think in a linear way. I just think that it's just my responsibility is to provide some pieces of the puzzle that each have value the same way as uh, Africa 2.0 as an Africa focus, Ubuntu tribe as a focus around um, more, you know, global prosperity um, and, um, you know, international engagement and trade based on real values. Um, you know, the, the Ubuntu Foundation, which is the larger shareholder of Ubuntu tribe, has a mission to help raise human consciousness, right, by focusing on investment and thought leadership and advocacy using the initial model of Africa 2.0 in terms of advocacy, but also decentralized investment around the five elements. Air, which is basically telecommunication, but also pollution. Water, because that's the next challenge of the planet, right? Fire, which is energy, renewables, etc. Earth, which is regenerated agriculture, nature-based science, and also regenerative mining. And at the center of all that is love as an investment destination and a collaboration destination and it, around education, healthcare, culture, and ancestral knowledge. I love the way you put it. So I think that that's uh, fantastic. We will put information about this for the people interested. Um, so, uh, in, in order to wrap up, and I'm conscious that we are close to one hour now, so um, what would be the message that you, you send to the children that are right now still over there in Africa and other parts of the world that uh, want to follow your steps, but as well to learn all this? Because I think that's quite important, the message of hope that I think it's part of all your work, but as well that we need to highlight. I would say, you know, um First, to be true to yourself, right? Um, embrace the power of the collective. And if you believe in something, give it your best um, for greater impact, not only for yourself, but for everyone around you. Uh, more importantly, change is coming and start being prepared now. Wonderful. So I think, well, there's a lot of things here. We're going to put all this information about the different initiatives that you are leading. Um, uh, it's been a privilege and uh, definitely uh, urge people to listen to you and as well to find more about you. So where can people find about you if you can just highlight from your own voice some of the pl platforms and websites and social networks that you highlight for people that want to know more about you? Yes, so uh, I'm mostly active on uh, on LinkedIn, I have to say. So Mamadou Kujim Toure, you can find me there. Um, Ubuntu Tribe website uh, is www.utribe.one, Africa 2.0 is um, www.africa2, uh, P-O-I-N-T-0. So the number two, P-O-I-N-T-0 dot org. Um, and, uh, you know, Ubuntu Love Challenge is www.ubuntulovechallenge.org. Um, and, um, and then um, the best way to find me is uh, 
actually by um, just searching the web and um, get lost to find yourself. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> now that's now that's uh, amazing, very inspiring. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. I think we'll be the, the first of a lot of other, but today we wrap up with this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. I, my honor. Thank you. Great.